Welcome to the Good Book Club podcast, where we make all our book club meetings and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. This book club episode is a discussion of the New York Times bestseller, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us by Ed Young. The earth teems with sights and textures, sounds and vibrations, smells and tastes, electric and magnetic fields, but every kind of animal, including humans, is enclosed within its own unique sensory bubble, perceiving but a tiny sliver of our immense world. In An Immense World, Ed Young coaxes us beyond the confines of our own senses, allowing us to perceive the schemes of scent, waves of electromagnetism, and pulses of pressure that surround us. We learned so much from this book, and we know you'll really enjoy it too. Discussion leader Luann did an excellent job presenting the book. This book club meeting was originally held on Sunday, November 12th, 2023. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Book Club. I'm Rebecca, and this is November 12th of 2023, and we have a really exciting book to talk about today. Um, We have a few slides to begin with. We always start with our mission statement. I, again, forgot to ask anybody to read the statement, so I'm just going to do it myself. We always do this at the beginning. Uh, The Good Book Club mission statement. The Good Book Club was created to bring together nuanced Mormons, post-Mormons, and others with a shared interest in Mormonism. We are introspective, critical thinkers seeking to learn, connect, and build relationships to the catalyst of literature. We welcome all who are searching for a safe space to share authentic thoughts, feelings, and ideas through open dialogue and shared experiences relative to Mormon culture. As we deconstruct previous beliefs, we encourage all to find happiness in the process of discovering new religious ideologies, spirituality, and life philosophies. So if you're new today to our book club, this is kind of our overarching statement and the goal for all of us. Uh, We'll talk about a few upcoming events for the book club before we get to our main discussion. We have some other reading opportunities. Let me grab my stack of books here. We have Vengeance is Mine that we've been working on pretty much all summer. And finally, this is part of the Mormon Stories book club that I helped John DeLynn run. We're going to be talking about this in a live discussion with the author, one of the authors, Barbara Jones Brown. This is going to be on Friday, November 17th at 3 p.m. I'll be putting the link um, in the Facebook, our book club page. You can also go onto the Mormon Stories book club page and find it there so that you can participate. It's going to be really, really fun. I get to be in studio, so it's going to be great. So that's one book. Let's see what else we have. Um, Trauma Bonded is another book that we've kind of been reading on the back burner. We're going to have the wonderful author Sarah on eventually, pretty soon. So if you haven't had a chance to pick that one up, grab it, put it on your reading list, you know, kind of a back burner type book. We also have another book like that, which is Navigating on Black Ice by the wonderful John Hansen. And we will be having him on Also, so that's another book to describe and kind of have there in your reading arsenal. (laughs) And then we also have, I happen to have a copy of this one, Letting Go by the amazing Lisa Hosler. Landon and I were able to have lunch with Lisa Um, yesterday. We are going to have her on Mormonish podcast. And she's also, I think, going to pop in and talk to the book club. But this is a really good book. Um, If you haven't had a chance to pick this up, you can find this on Amazon too. And we'll be chatting with her at some point. So Letting Go, really good. 
Um, our next book coming up is The Wonderful Happiness Hypothesis. I'm so excited to be reading this one. We have Joel, who's going to be our discussion leader, and we're going to be having a little preview from Joel later on, probably after the discussion. We'll be talking a little more about this, but this is our book for December, so make sure you go out and get a copy of that. Ooh, I think we covered all the books. Now we're to the book we're talking about today, The Immense World. This is such a different book. And a lot of us have said we love book club because it makes you read things that you probably wouldn't necessarily even think about picking up. I think I heard Jackie say that. So we are really excited that the book club gives us the opportunity to read things that maybe are out of our paradigm and we can learn so much. So we have Luann leading today and we're going to turn everything over to her right now to talk about An Immense World. Okay, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> this is another book that is full of endless detail. And it, I, I just needed an, another attempt to tackle how do you have a discussion when the detail is so small, you probably don't want to bring up a, a each detail. So this time I'm dividing the discussion in uh, into two elements. Uh, one is that we will explore the ideas of the book by answering questions. And the other is that we will experience the book by watching videos that summarize some of the detail. Um, I think that when it's all over, it'll feel somewhat unsatisfying because an immense world is more thought and more beauty than this short time allows. Uh, despite this, let's do our best. So we'll start with uh, a video by uh, Ed Yong, uh, number one. Can you see that? Yes. We obviously taste with our tongues, but a catfish is essentially a swimming tongue. It has taste buds all over its skin. If you put little pieces of food near the flank of a catfish, it will be able up. to taste it and turn around and snap it up. For most animals, taste is about food. It's about trying to work out whether something is worth eating or not. And for humans, food is something that we put in our mouths. But if you're a very small animal, food can be something you land on. And which is why for many insects, taste buds are some things that are found in their feet as well as in their mouths. A fly landing on the apple that you're trying to eat can taste it just by walking on it before you put it in your mouth. Okay, that was the taste video. Um, it, it wasn't the first one I wanted, but let's go from there. So the next would be the smell video, which is numbered seven. Oh, number seven? Okay. Yes. And it should have smell in the title. Oh, it's going to make us watch it. Are there chapters? Avoid the advertisements. Are there chapters down below that you can just go directly to? One of the primary uses of scent in the animal kingdom is for navigation. For 
Was that was that yes, it? Yes, that's perfect. Thank okay. you. Finding your way around a landscape. You know, my dog Typo absolutely can do this. He knows where we are by cross-referencing his memories of the smells of the neighborhood against what he's smelling at any given moment. But there are other animals that use scent for navigation in even more extraordinary ways. A lot of seabirds, the group known as tube noses, use the odorscapes of the ocean to find food. The ocean looks featureless to us, right? We can glide over it and just see this endless expanse of uniform blue, but it's not featureless to an albatross. Underwater features like mountains and valleys leads to concentrations of nutrients, which then concentrate food, plankton, and then krill, the kinds of things that a seabird might eat. And so the ocean has this undulating odorscape odors that reveal the concentration of possible food, and then areas of no scent that reveal scarcity in the deep. Elephants can do this too. You know, elephants can navigate over long distances. Obviously, they have that trunk. They are constantly scanning about with this extremely elongated nose. You know, they'll react to the imminent arrival of rain. People have suggested that they can find buried sources of water by smelling it. It's quite difficult to understand exactly how elephants smell because they are large, intelligent animals that are difficult to work with. Part of this relies on us using our imaginations, like watching their incredible behavior, looking at their trunk, and trying to just make educated guesses about what their olfactory world might be like. And the next one is sight. That would be labeled number four. I, like most of you, have two eyes. They sit in the front of my face and they point forwards, which means that my visual world is always in front of me and I walk into it. But most birds have eyes on the sides of their heads, which means their visual world is around them. They often have close to wraparound vision, seeing to the sides and also a little bit to the back. And that kind of wraparound vision is really hard to wrap your head around. And then, of course, there are changes that can occur over an animal's lifetime. So the umwelt of an adult might be different to the umwelt of a juvenile. Jumping spiders are very driven by vision. They have excellent eyes. But those eyes also become more sensitive as they get older, more sensitive to light, which means that I think the world of a jumping spider will get brighter as it ages. One scientist described this to me as a jumping spider watching the sun rise as it gets older. Okay, let's, let's try. Uh, the one that's labeled number one, Umwelt. Um, and then we'll kind of think about a little bit about our senses. Uh, this so, is kind of the introduction to the concept that this book is talking about. So num number one is the one number you want to Yes. I think it's right here. So we obviously taste. No, it, it's um, the intro. It's the intro. And start with, uh, I think it's like 59, 58 seconds. 
כן? So the word Umwelt was popularized and defined by a German zoologist named Jakob von Uxko in the early 20th century. It comes from the German word for environment, but he meant the animal's sensory environment. And that's the specific set of sights, smells, textures, and sounds that that animal has access to and that another animal might not. When you really think about the senses, you do start to understand the very different kinds of information that those senses offer their owners. Okay, so we and that's good. We'll take a break. Uh, so the book talks about we think we know our world and we live in it like that's all there is and it's not all there is. Um, the animals that are biased are seeing a different world because their senses are different. Um, and uh, because of this, uh, Ed Young uh, makes this beautiful book that opens our eyes to the infinite variety of experiences, sights, sounds, smells, and tastes that this world holds. And um, anyway, um, first question I wanted to ask, um, which is, um, we'll go ahead with it, is I think we should spend just a moment or two having experienced this book to talk about what the experience has been to you. And so uh, if you want to express something about how you felt about the book or what you, what it difference it made to you, uh, please share. And we'll start with Bruce. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, I've mentioned this at many of our book clubs where I was raised and most of us were raised with a view of how the world work works, what's right, what's wrong, what how everything fits together and having left that kind of worldview the world is much more complex much more varied and interesting and the narrative of how the world works that i grew up with i don't think is correct and so reading this book i'm going like okay you know um when I was a missionary in Chile, you know, I learned Spanish and you know, I learned how to communicate with um, Spanish-speaking people, and that it you know came to my mind going like, okay, if we have different animals, especially our pets, dogs, cats, are we communicating correctly through their language? What what they value, what they understand. Um, I still think basically, if you die, your cat will eat you. And I, you know, think, and cats are my favorite uh, animal, except I'm allergic to them, so I don't have pets. But it's just the, the worldview that I was raised with, all of the books from the book club have helped me understand that that worldview is not correct. I'm still trying to figure out what's the correct worldview and understanding. But this book, along with others, has helped me kind of get a, a broader, better understanding of how the world actually works. Thank you, Bruce. 
Jackie? Yes, sorry, I'm trying to mute myself. You know, for me, I uh, biology and math was always hard for me growing up in school. So I took the safe routes and went my history and English. And so I never exposed myself to any of this. And then from my background in Mormonism, it was always the world's going to be better, right? We're in the the telestial state, right? The world was in the telestial state and this church and this world was going to be celestialized. So colors were going to be better and everything was going to be better. So I lived in this world and I've always loved nature. I'm, I, I have to have nature and I'd love flowers, but, I, you know, it was always like, well, we're in this telestial state. And now I'm in this glorious spot of just absolutely in awe that I'm even conscious and that I'm conscious and I can even read a book like this. And people are understanding these other, I'm going to have to say environment. I can't say the ump well word. You just and, did. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And it just brings so much joy and joy in the moment and, and to appreciate all of these animals and the detail of their lives. And I just feel like I missed out on so much. And so like, you know, I'm constantly trying to catch up now in this second half of life. I just can't tell you how much I, I appreciated this book. And the beauty of each one of these insects that normally, God, I don't like spiders and I, but you're just fascinated now. So, and Luann, I'm loving the videos. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Landon. Yeah, I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, as I read the book, I was just impressed that the world is so much more complicated than, uh, than we think. And, and it just made me appreciate the world for what it is and evolution and how long it took for these senses to develop, uh, the millions of individuals that had to slowly change to adapt to see that and to really appreciate different animals for what they can do and what, what they can sense or bring to us. I mean, yeah, I've got smelly feet, but I can't smell with my feet like a fly can, you know, <laughs> it's just... It, you look at the world in a completely different way when you see that and the eyes and how some of the animals that said could see like, I can't remember, it was like hundreds of times the number of colors that we can see. And you just wonder, what does that world look, what's the world look like to that animal that's seen hundreds or thousands of more colors than what we see? It just really made me appreciate what's out there and, and the fact that different things can see with different uh, uh how every how every animal has a different worldview just like people have a different worldview the animals have a different worldview and that that's it uh, Dave Morris was raising his hand Luann uh, just so you get him in the queue so uh I don't see him anywhere would he like to go next sure the I read I remember reading one line and it was something like um our fingertips are the most sensitive um touch organ to us and I thought, how often have we been brought up in this life, um, particularly with the context if you've been lifelong Mormon, I'm in my 50s now, that we grab things with our wrist, with our hand, and we hang on tight, we hang on to that, you know, that wretched, you know, rod of iron. But actually, very rarely did we ever touchy-feely find out for ourselves. It was always everything was so sure in our life. We never had the need to question. We never had the need to challenge. 
um, even as a, as a priesthood leader. I couldn't understand. Why can't you just believe what we're telling you? But it, I don't know why this this fingertip just resonated with me. Um, I think I wrote it down. I think it was yeah, nature's most sensitive touch organ. And I think that's very indicative of perhaps of where many of us are, that maybe later in life, we're now doing the touchy-feely and realising actually the sensation is far greater than we ever had when we held on tight. Oh, I so agree. Rebecca. Yeah, I love that, David. Thank you so much. That's a really interesting concept, way to think about it. Um, I was I noticed this paradigm shift that I was having when we read Braiding Sweetgrass, which I believe was a year ago, August. I think it's been a year since we read it, or maybe September. Um and I started thinking, why Why do I care about this now? I mean, I care before, you know, the earth, the environment, animals, but why do I really care now? And, and a book like this just highlights it. And I realized that my paradigm has now shifted into, in my perspective, in my belief system, this is the only life I have. And, you know, I'm not working for the next life. I'm not looking forward to anything like that or even worrying about it. Come what may is how I feel. And so if this is my life and this is my present, I want to look and sense and feel and experience everything in it down to the micro level. And, and that's why I just I, I've noticed that about myself, just this paradigm shift of really caring about things that I was completely oblivious to before when it comes to the world and everything in it. So, so I just love this. This is going to be a great discussion. Thank you. And Derek? I think you're on mute, Derek. <laughs> um, if you can undo your mute, there you go. That? I think a better. lot of different things hit me. As I started reading this book, I, I started getting hit by a lot of things. Um, you know, one of the first things was, have you ever argued with a philosopher over the validity of the senses? And they will argue with you all day long about, oh, you, your senses can only perceive the world in a single way, so you really don't aren't perceiving the world. And this book is the answer to that argument. The, the senses are reality they are developed by reality they can do nothing but respond to reality that was one of the things i don't know if you've ever argued with a philosopher uh another thing that hit me was uh the real meaning of you can't even imagine and we, we say that all the time but that really struck home it's like, like no i can't really imagine <laughs> and i think uh Landon referred to it uh, briefly is I think it not only applies to not even be able to imagine uh, how animals see the world correctly, <laughs> but how people see the world. And uh, that's hit home quite a bit is, no, I can't imagine how you feel. No, I can't imagine how you're understanding this. No, I can't imagine how you think about this. Um, I think I'll stop there. There were a couple other points, but they'll probably come up. <laughs> okay, and you're welcome to contribute them at that point uh, or any time. Uh, that actually did lead into, uh, well, go ahead, Jerry first, you next, and then we'll go on to the next question. Don't forget that you're muted. It's okay. Um, one thing, um, I grew up in Cedar City, Utah, where everything was like 99% Mormon, and I was not Mormon, but just because of the environment, I absorbed so much Mormonism, and 
evolution was like a dirty word. And um, mm-hmm. it took me a long time to get that out of my head, uh, you know, after I kind of got out of Utah. And I, one of the things I loved about this book was how many times he references how these senses develop through evolution. Um, I just found that fascinating that, and sometimes he would say that a, a particular animal or a particular sense would be um, evolved and then selected and then die out and then evolved another time. Um, I just uh, thought that the discussion of evolution was really fascinating. And the other thing that I was struck by was all these different animals have their their sensory environment and how much we are screwing around with them. For instance, when they talked about how much light is um you know, messing up with with the animals and their ability to navigate through their own senses. And we've flooded the world with light, which really messes with a lot of animals and their, you know, needs. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that is a concept that hurts. Uh, Young said no animal can sense everything well nor would any animal want to. It would be overwhelmed by the flood of stimuli, most most of which would be irrelevant. Evolving according to their owner's needs, the senses sort through an infinity of stimuli, filtering out what's relevant and capturing signals for food, shelter, threats, um, allies, or mates. So, accepting all of that, are you still left with some jealousy towards the senses of animals that were described in this book? And if so, what are you jealous of? And um, I'll, I'll be the first one to answer that. I'm jealous of uh, I'm jealous of the colors. I want to see yearful and rural and um blurple and purple um and, and it actually said that getting to the fourth dimension of um being able to see colors that you can see millions more millions of colors so i am jealous about that and my mind went blank because i'm jealous about something else too i can't believe this <laughs> I've forgotten what I'm jealous about. Uh, Bruce, what are you jealous about? Well, this kind of piggybacks on Geraldine's comment and my view, having been raised in a culture where everything is for sure and prescribed and having left that culture, the world is much bigger and wilder and and more full of things than I ever thought, including evolution. You know, when Geraldine was talking about, uh, you know, the millions of years it takes to select for certain senses and stuff, the enormity of time is, I'm just going like, okay, we've been developing into what we are for millions and millions of years. And then I get back to, you know, how to be perfect. Um, Michael Schur, the uh, 
the Good Place series. And I guess it's kind of the Buddhist thing where our life is like a wave and we crash and then we just kind of go back into the ocean. I've I've had to come to grips with the concept that, okay, the molecules that make me for this one short time are being me and it's wonderful, it's unusual and I should enjoy it. Um, and yeah, so the, the world is bigger than I was taught. I'm still not sure I understand everything about how big the world is. And then when I was at work occasionally, this I used to kind of somewhat gross people out, but I would say, you know, all smells are particulate. And they would think a second and then they're going like, oh, gross. But, you know, all smells are particulate. So I will end with that thought. Okay, Landon. Thank you, Bruce. I'll be real short. I, I, I'm i jealous of mating. Mating seems a lot easier than dating in the animal world. <laughs> <laughs> How well do you sing? <laughs> okay. If, uh, if singing was required for humans, I, I'd, I'd be I'd be dead. <laughs> I, I'd definitely be single. Um. Okay. Uh. What senses of animals would you not want to have? And I I think the first is pretty obvious. If we had the ability to hear. Is it ultrasonic or the other? But anyway, if we were to hear bats making their noises, life would be a nightmare. So I would not want to have the ability to, to hear those decibels. It says that a bat uh, sending out his sound for echolocation uh, is as loud as a jet engine. And at nights when my husband and I go out and see the 20 bats beautifully circling in the backyard, there'd be 20 jet engines right there. No fun. So is there any other sense that you would not want to have? In the well, and that, that sound one got me thinking, you know, what a well must, you know, a well could hear for hundreds of miles, it sounded like. And with the oceans and the ships and all the sounds that are going on, I, I got to think that we've just made their life really miserable with all that man-made sound that must be traveling to, to them. And maybe they can't hear all of it. I don't, I don't know, but you, you're right. That sound one would just drive you nuts if it was noisy all the time and you could hear all of those ranges. Fortunately, I'm, I'm half deaf, so I can only hear some ranges anyway. So mm -hmm. that, uh, certainly limits it and I've appreciated as I've been losing some of my hearing I've appreciated the fact how how nice that is to have a range where you can actually hear uh across the whole range uh, I I just had a, a an ear test and they told me oh you probably can't hear female voices very well and I said well that's probably best but <laughs> <laughs> because I, 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 I've lost that higher range, but I definitely noticed, you know, that when you start losing some of those senses and, and Karen, you probably can talk that with your losing your sight, how when you start losing senses, you start really, it, it really becomes noticeable to you and you really see what you're losing as you start to lose some of those uh, 
senses that you used to have. Mm -hmm. Bruce. Well, I found um, the chapter on the echolocation and the guy that was he in his 50s or 60s that has been blind since birth uh, with eye cancer. And he can echolocate by making his own clicks. And he figured that out as a child before coming across the concept of echolocation. And Karn and I were over at Braille Institute the other day, and you know it's got hard floors. And there were a lot of people being taught cane travel. And as they were tapping, I'm going like, okay, in the big kind of main lobby entrance that's like 20 or 30 feet high, the taps sounded different than when they got down a hall. And then I could also see where they got caught by chair legs and stuff like that. And I'm going like, huh, our ability to develop senses, I think is probably greater than we think because, you know, if, if something, um, one of our senses isn't quite as good. I think we do conceptually have the ability to develop other senses. It's a coping mechanism that we see animals have done, uh, you know, bats flying at night. Um, and uh, like in that one video, um, the albatross being able to kind of smell the different ocean to where the animals are, where the food is and stuff like that. So I just thought that was very interesting because, you know, you know, the other day, Car and I were over at Braille Institute and uh, um, yeah, it, it, it's kind of a, it's a new world for me since I have three friends now that have vision loss. And I have glaucoma and I'm going like, okay, I'm talking to my doctor and making sure that we're doing everything that I don't have vision loss because that kind of concerns me. So that's just kind of some of my thoughts. Mm -hmm. I thought it was very sad that it said many parents will discourage their blind child from jumping or snapping or tapping uh, just because they don't realize that they could be developing echolocation. Joel, uh, your turn. Yeah, um, I appreciate your observation, Bruce, around um, you know the ability to kind of improve some of these senses. Because uh, when you asked the question, Ann, like, what would I not want to have? My first thought was, I'm already clumsy enough with like two legs. If I were a spider and had a zillion legs, I feel like I'd just be stumbling all over the place every time. Um, and I appreciated, Bruce, your perspective that like, as we, I don't know that we would consciously do this, but uh, whether conscious or, you know, kind of driven to it by outside forces that you can kind of fine tune those things. I had an experience where I was fishing up in Alaska and I'm not a fisherman. I don't know the first thing about it, but my brother took me fishing who is a fisherman up in Alaska at the time that the salmon were running. And this is literally where the salmon are like jumping out of the river and into the fishermen's like nets or whatever. And I couldn't catch a single thing. I caught one fish that was half dead but uh, I was standing next to my brother who caught a zillion of them. And I'm like, gosh, there's obviously some skill, some knowledge, some muscle that he's developed that I either genetically don't have or haven't haven't progressed on. 
Um, and so anyway, I, I appreciate the thought that we can address some of those things. Okay. You reminded me of the part about the octopus and how it's five arms, is it? are pretty much on their own and the octopus brain can control them a little bit at times but mainly they're just free to do what they want and yes um my coordination huh? it was something like that would make it a lot worse <laughs> yeah that nine nine brains that would be something to be jealous of maybe but uh maybe not then you'd have <laughs> like not. nine different personalities <laughs> <laughs> right. I think it's time for a clip. We found one of the mantis shrimp, and uh, the big discussion in the book was about its eyes, and it went into great detail about how great its eyes were, and then it went, but it can't use them very much, and then it went into ways that it did use them, and it was very complicated, and I really couldn't tell you the te technical part of it, but... Um, Anyway, it's worth a look. Despite being only six inches long, pound for pound, he packs the biggest punch in the natural world. This is the peacock mantis shrimp. He's actually neither a shrimp nor a mantis but stomatopod just doesn't have the same ring to it. This guy's biggest problem right now is real estate. There are more shrimps here than there are crannies for them to claim. In a hot market, you have to move fast. All that activity works up an appetite. Time to bring out the big guns. He's armed with the most sophisticated vision of any predator on Earth and the fastest strike. His eyes work independently and together to better target his prey. These eyes detect more colors than any creature on Earth and see polarized light He closes in on his target. The mantis unloads the ace up his sleeve. Hammer claws. His spring-loaded clubs strike 50 times faster than we can blink. For a moment, the surrounding water reaches the temperature of the surface of the sun. You heard that right.
This crab is toast. I should have I should have given a trigger warning but it does lead to the next question which is how does the an immense world illustrate the splendors and the travails of this world of our life he talks about we're all we animals are different nations but we share the yeah splendors and travails of this life so do you have any thoughts about that i was uh, going to say i i don't have an answer to that question um i'll let someone else answer that i was going to make a comment on what we just saw i feel like soon in the theaters we're going to see ryan gosling is mantis shrimp i feel like it needs to be some kind of superhero because that is incredible so, <laughs> i would like to see that the details are amazing. Heat of the sun. I mean, how does the mantis shrimp live through the heat? Exactly. And does no, he eat I've, a cooked meal? I feel like it could be the new King Kong, right? Mantis shrimp. I love it. <laughs> the, the only thing I thought about that was at least with that kind of heat, um, the suffering of the crab would be short. Um, it would be basically cooked, boiled yes. right there in the yes. second. So yeah, sorry to uh, to digress, but I just thought that no, was really no, funny. So okay. move on with your question. That's okay, Bruce. <laughs> yeah, I just have a question. As we were preparing for this last week in our prep meeting, um, I was familiar with the mantis shrimp because on YouTube, I had looked at a video of a guy that has, you know, there's different guys that have mantis shrimp in aquariums and they feed them different little crabs and stuff and then videotape them, you know, pouncing and they're um, like smashing whatever animal and it makes a loud noise and stuff. And like with many things on YouTube, if you watch one or two videos on it, then YouTube alg the YouTube algorithm will feed you more and more of that. So if you happen to look up mantis shrimp and you'll you'll see, you know, these guys are making constant videos and their mantis shrimp have names and they feed them different little aquatic creatures and the mantis shrimp goes out and eats them and stuff. And you can get you can go down a rabbit hole on that, but it is interesting. Um, everything, I mean, there's a whole kind of, I guess, symbiotic life that we all have and we're just part of it. You know, we get eaten also less so now, you know, I, I think like, um, with our, the, our, our village hiking group on Friday, we did a, uh, I did about a three and a half mile hike. And then I went to walk yesterday and about a mile into my walk, my knees started hurting a whole lot. So I called an Uber or a Lyft to get back home because I'm like, okay, I shouldn't be uh, walking when my knees are hurting a lot. And came, I was thinking, okay, if I were 
old and in a hunter-gatherer society and my knees started hurting, I would fall behind the the tribe or the band and the wolves would get me, you know, kind of like a circle of life, natural, natural recycling. So that kind of stuff. I thought more about that with this book. We'd carry you, Bruce. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of the book was about eating. Uh, Melissa. So I'm kind of a, well, kind of, I'm a sensitive soul. And when I was growing up, I couldn't really watch, you know, National Geographic where like the lions are hunting the cute little antelope or, you know, it was always so hard for me to see that kind of death and that kind of, you know, I know it's the circle of life, but it was always so hard. But then when you stop and you look at it from a, you know, a circle of life perspective where this is the species trying to continue and, you know, sometimes baby antelopes die. And, you know, if the baby antelope didn't die, then the baby tiger would die and, or sorry, lion would die. And so then, you know, it, and so you kind of have a different perspective on it after you kind of think about it more that way, because you're like, yeah, you know, sometimes things have to die in order for other things to live. And it's just, you know, then a tiger might die. So another animal might live. And, it's just looking at it from that perspective doesn't necessarily make it easier for a sensitive soul, but it also kind of gives it um, a bigger, broader perspective, you know, because, you know, I like hermit crabs. So this poor little hermit crab's dying, but man, that mantis shrimp is cute. And if that mantis shrimp didn't live, then, you know, what a loss that would be. And so I, I it just gives me a different perspective for somebody who's super sensitive. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I feel super sensitive too. And uh, the concept that, um, we eat each other hurts, um, but it been doing it all my life. Um, it reminds me of uh, Kipling in uh, the Jungle Book, where he's the law of the jungle was you can kill to eat or you can kill to defend yourself, but nothing more. And I guess we'd make progress if it were nothing more, but it still hurts. And the other thought I wanted to say is. I think the travails of life, this book made me realize that the travails of life have a lot to do with evolution, that there is the force out there, natural selection, that works to make it so that we can defend ourselves. Uh, Landon, your turn. Uh, I was just going to say, I, I kind of think it's a shame that we just watch cat videos on YouTube. There should be mantis videos and fly videos and bee videos because once you understand how they work, it's like, oh, now I want to watch them and see. I'd like to see that creature with the electric field and see how it's actually moving through its environment and stuff. I think there's probably a lot of really interesting videos out there uh, if we know what we're looking for. And I think this book kind of made that, pointed that out uh, to me. Yes. Um Let's see, we have Jerry. Uh, Jerry, you're muted. I do that all the time. Try a little harder. Uh, you There, you clicked it. That it? Oh, okay. Thank uh, you. When the Manda spray was, it said it was uh striking 50 times faster than a blink of the eye and then another place in the book it talked about how the um bat was 
would emit its signals and combined with its other senses, it would do things so rapidly. And I'm just think it just brought uh, thinking about our sense of time and what would that be like if, you know, I wonder if time is different for these different species because you can't even comprehend that kind of quick time. I mean, and you think about the life cycle of some insects that are only days or weeks. What is time to those different species? So that that resonated throughout the book. What is time to all of these different creatures when we we think of time as as stable, but time really is just a construct for us. And every animal must have a different sense of time. That's one of the things I was thinking. Yes, I think Young implies it with the bats and the quick echolocation. Yes. And then also with the whales. And he says their beats are, heartbeats are, oh, maybe 50 or something above the water. And then when they dive deep, it's like two or three uh, beats in the same amount of time. And he, he implies that time slows down for them. Right. So I thought that was an interesting concept. Bruce. I just remember the concept, you know, the concept of different perceptions of time. Growing up, I had two times that my perception of time was just excruciating. One was during sacrament meeting when the high councilman would get up and drone on and on. And I was waiting to go home. And this is, you know, when we had the split block and I was waiting to go home and have lunch. Time just slowed down. And then um, early morning seminary, which I went to, but I didn't like, but that hour seemed to, dra to drag on and on. So I had a little bit of taste of how time, the perception of time. And now as I'm getting older, I mean, we're at Thanksgiving now. I'm 66 and boy, it just seems like Thanksgiving was just a while ago. And, you know, our perception of time changes, I think, as we age and, uh, and stuff. So that was just my comment. Okay, thank you. The next question is directed towards the poets in our group. And it says, what do you think of the observations? In a way, we see by smelling light. Um, beauty is not just in the eye of the beholder, it arises because of the eye, or the eyes define the pot palette. Does anyone have any thoughts about that concept? Give you a minute because that takes a little bit to think about. Uh, Jackie. Well, what it brings me to is our previous book on uh, language, the evolution of language and metaphor and how important metaphor is, because that's what he's using to try to explain to us something that we really can't wrap our head around. And of course, it's written so beautifully. And so I'm just kind of I'm doing cross discipline here and and putting the two together. OK, thank you. Um, I just have the thought just now that this is the other end of evolution, like the trivial, the 
evolution helps animals through survival of the fitness to develop senses that will protect them from predators. But on the, um, the eye creates the palate, it's the opposite. It's the uh, splendor. And uh, that uh, their research has shown that the eyes were first and that the flowers, et cetera, adopt, uh, adapted to attract uh, those particular eyes. So the ev evolutionary side would be building the splendor. Uh, so anyway, so much for that. Um, and it also says that the ears define the voices. It's the same concept as sight, only with uh, sound. Landon. Yeah, my the my favorite poetic part of the book was where they were talking about dark skies, and he talked about how uh, some of the light has been traveling to the earth for thir 13 billion years it took to get here. And then with the flip of a switch, we wipe it out in the last billionth of a second uh, of that light's travel to us and we never see it. And and I thought that was a, a good way to, to put what we're doing with the dark skies where we're wiping out what's taken billions of years to get to us and we just wipe it out with, with the lights that we turn on. Yes, that is indeed tragic poetry. Um, another interesting, oh, Bruce, go ahead. Well, I just thought here might be a good place for Landon and Rebecca to insert their little commentary on the Heber Temple and <laughs> Wyoming Temple because on their podcast, they've been talking about this and you know, in listening to the audio book on the light section, the light pollution and stuff. So Landon and Rebecca, take away your comments <laughs> on the Mormon church's temples. Oh, I don't know if you want us to go there. Do you? <laughs> no, but but we picked up or Landon picked up on that that line that he just quoted. And we actually sent it to both um, our friends in Heber and our friends in Cody. If some of you in the book club aren't familiar, we've been working with both citizen groups there. There are temples being built there um, in locations that just are not a good spot for the temple to be. Um, so we're trying to help these citizens group fight this, you know, monster of a corporation um, who are suing them and intimidating, you know, all, there's too much to go on. You can watch our Mormonish podcast about it, but, but there's very little care um, by the church at all for exactly what Landon was describing. Um, the dark skies, Heber actually has a dark sky ordinance, which the, the county ended up changing. All LDS commissioners and the church went to them and said, oh, we want to put a temple here. I mean, these things are just lighted jack to Jesus is what I like to call it. Is that what you would call it, Landon? We've been driving around to temples at night, um, just as we happen to be out and about. And the, the light, it's just incredible. I, I know that LDS people say they find this beautiful, but there are many others in the world that find the dark skies and the natural environment beautiful. And then when we read in the book about what it does to animals um, and birds and, and literally a life or death situation in some cases where they can't navigate and their, their, their rhythms are all off because of this, this is never taken into any consideration. So we sent, um, 
lines from the book, the uh, information to the residents of City and Cody, uh, of sorry, of Heber and Cody. You know, if anything, it's not going to change this legal process and this battle that they're all in, but perhaps getting the information like that out to other residents in the town will cause more of an outcry or, or just education. But yeah, I found that extraordinarily sad when I really understood the impact that these just I mean, these temples are lit. You guys have seen them. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> they just destroy any of that natural, dark environment that's there. And they really impact the the animals. Landon, do you have anything to add about that? Yeah, I, the thing I've noticed uh, and that this book has brought out and some of the other books that we've read is that, you know, in the temple, we talk about Genesis and the creation and we watch a movie about how beautiful the creation is and how God made all these beautiful things for man to enjoy. And then we wipe it out with a building so we can watch a movie telling us about how much <laughs> man can enjoy. Uh, it's kind of sad. And and yeah. one thing I've, I've seen is the apathy towards nature of <laughs> most members of the church yep. that buildings and... Yep. And these things are more important than the very things God created to give us to enjoy. And that's the sad part. And you make that argument to them and they all go, but I feel so wonderful about the temple. It's and the you're temple. going, but other people feel wonderful about the creations of God mm -hmm. and you're wiping that out. But nobody wants to hear that. And it's kind of, it's kind of sad. And, but these books have brought about that beauty of nature so much more poignant to me. And, and yet I feel like they're intent on wiping that out. I mean, if you build it in the city, okay, that's, but There's so many light. of these are towns yeah. that are small towns out in the middle of open, beautiful mm -hmm. uh, skies and people vacation there for exactly that reason. And they're, they're destroying that. They're taking that environment away. Well, and the residents that we're working with, um, majority, of course, are not LDS. You know, they, they belong to other religions. They're religious people. And they have also been really surprised. And they ask us things like, is there not an environmental concern in the LDS church? Because for them, there is, you know, and that, that's why they're in these citizens groups saying, please don't do this to our environments here. Please don't destroy this. And so they've been They've been really interested to find out that there doesn't seem to be a concern for the environment within Mormonism. And I know that's a generalization, but both uh, city groups, both residents groups have said that to us. Mormons aren't concerned about about the earth or anything like that. And Landon and I are like, oh, well, you know, the earth is going to be resurrected. We don't need to worry about it now. So others take note that Mormons seem indifferent. And... It's sad. Uh, Genesis says, dominate and subdue. And um, that's hard. In fact, I think Joe had a comment. Yeah, I think I... Joe had something when we were talking. Yes. Joe, come back. If you'd like. Can you hear me okay? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So, so when you're talking about that, I, I remember reading an article in National Geographic, and they were talking about the struggle turtles have because they, they get confused by the lights and the light pollution versus the ocean. So when they try to go back to the ocean after they're born, they go the wrong way. And one of the examples they used was the Bountiful Temple, how much light pollution it provides. And I, I thought that was interesting that they really made a point of, yeah, this is not a good thing. So That and the display of the Twin Towers, the light beams that go up. That was another thing that they mentioned that um, 
was harmful to migrating birds who would get disoriented and lose a day when their um, metabolism was challenged. Um, so uh, let's see. I had the question, how can we as individuals keep the quiet and preserve the dark? Uh, and we've already talked about the need, but what are the personal costs involved in doing this? And one thing mentioned in a video, I think, is shoes, our shoes come from China. What would we give up if we were to go back to our more quiet and darker world? I think I think that's the challenge is, you know, it's it, it's nice to say, wouldn't it be nice if we were all hunter gatherers again and one with the environment? But the reality is a, a majority of us wouldn't be here if that was the case, because it's these same innovations that allow the agriculture and the uh, other things that allow such a large population to exist in the first place. So really, the challenge is you know, what can we give up um, and, and what can we realistically do uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, to, to, to dream that we could just go back to that society because I don't think that that's possible or desirable for most people. Uh, but, uh, you know, simple things like, you know, we just talked about the t temple thing that why does it have to be lit? Uh, you know, why, why can't it just have some simple lights and, and that you still have your building, you still do things, but there's things we can do that, that reduce that effect. And that's what we've got to be willing to look at is how can I reduce that, that signature? Or how can I reduce my effect on my environment? And that's what this book really taught me was what am I doing that might be affecting the nature around me that I could do differently? Okay, good, good. It's a good point. Um, I know I used to write abstracts of journals and uh, did a lot on globalization. And post-World War II, when the most traumatic thing had happened to the world that uh, recent history knew of, um, the economists, like uh, the Keynesian uh, economics, was built on the concept of let's make a tighter, more dependent world so that people don't go to war against each other. And they're going, if you're trading, if you're trading and borrowing, you have an interest in the other country's well-being. And so the fact that we move everything across the world is not just for our own convenience, but it's, it's one of uh, some people thought would be an effort towards peace. So the tensions are definitely there. And we need some really smart people, don't we? Let's go on to a few more videos. I know time is getting short, but I would like to hear the touch, the hearing, and then the cute little tree hopper and the mouse. So a sea otter has very sensitive paws. They don't look very sensitive. They look like these weird sort of cauliflowery mittens. They have a sense of touch that is equal to our exquisitely sensitive fingertips. 
one of the key differences is that they are also extremely skilled at using that sense of touch. They're very fast about making touch-based decisions. A sea otter will dive down into the ocean and very quickly root around with its paws. It will grab that sea urchin, yoink that clam, and then rise to the surface before eating its food. A sea otter doesn't have the benefit of blubber that a whale or a, a walrus might have. It has very thick fur, but it can find enough food to eat because it has not only very sensitive hands, but very fast hands too. Even in a completely dark room, where the very large eyes of an owl might not be of much use, they can still hear, and they hear really well. The dish of feathers around an owl's face that gives it that distinctive owly look acts as a radar dish, funneling sound towards its ears. Those ears are incredibly sensitive, but they also have a unique trick that allows the owl to work out exactly where sound is coming from. Based on when sound arrives in my ears, whether it first arrives at the left or the right, I can tell where a sound is coming from in the horizontal plane. I can't do that trick in the vertical very well because my ears are level with each other, so sound arises at both of them from above or below at the same time. An owl solves this problem because its ears are offset, so they're asymmetrical, so one ear is slightly higher than the other. And when sound arrives at that ear first, the owl knows where in the vertical plane its target is. And that's why an owl in the dark can land exactly on a mouse. It's why owls in the wild can bust through snow to pick up scurrying rodents that they couldn't even see. The uh, next one would be the uh, tree hopper. And this is a minute and a half, which seems long, but I couldn't figure out which vibrations were the sounds of the tree hopper as it vibrated through a plant. And all of them might be, but as you look at it, if you kind of try to figure out the movements to the sound, I'm quite sure the barking sound is the tree hopper, but there are other sounds, and I, uh, there's an indolating sound that I think is the tree hopper too, and maybe the others. So can you find that, Brennan? The cute little tree hopper.
that was the other sense that I was jealous of was being able to hear the vibrations that are going through plants. Now, the other one is the mouse songs. It's just a short, short clip that um, think, think bird songs, think mouse songs, think love serenades. Give me just a second to pull that. You have a second. Any thoughts while he's doing it? What was your reaction to the tree hopper? Anyone have anything to say? I was going to go back to the owl. And I was going to say, I love that. That's such a perfect example. That's very clear to understand about evolution. The owls that had ears that were together, they all couldn't find food or they got eaten by predators. One owl has an ear that's a little, you know, and then that eventually becomes what all owls have. And that's what allows you to survive. To me, little things like that, it exactly explains how we all involved and what works. So I love that example. Thank you. Uh, Jerry. I just had a funny thought that uh, you see science fiction movies where these uh, humanoid looking creatures come along. You wonder why uh, the artists don't explore some of these creatures for their ideas about what another uh, interplanetary being would look like. I mean, that little guy was so bizarre looking and <laughs> that'd be the kind of creature that would come from outer space anyway. That's all. Uh, yeah, we don't need aliens. We have them here. Uh, Joel. It, it, um, you know, just taking going back to the owl example that you talked about, Rebecca, um, it's interesting to me because there are a lot of people I know, and this is not a criticism, who would look at that and say, wow, that is evidence of a divine creator who made the owl like that, um, as opposed to, wow, you can see how over millions of years that bird developed that ability because it adds some, you know, Advent, you know, advantage to them. Um, if you haven't already read it, I'm sure, imagine most of you have. There's a book called The Magic of Reality by Dawkins that uh, I love for a few reasons. That looks at a whole bunch of things that people attribute to being divinely magical, um, and it sort of shows maybe why they're not divine, but also then provides examples of amazing things that um, that the Earth itself creates. Right. So rather than having to attribute all this amazing stuff to a god. Um, why can't we just celebrate the fact that evolution itself is is amazing and and uh, mind blowing in its own right? Good points. Thank you. Are, are, yeah. Okay, I think we're ready. Yeah, uh, I just want to add before we do that, uh, add on to Joel. Uh, we went up when we went up to Cody to visit them. On the way back, we stopped at a museum uh, in Thermopolis, Wyoming, of all places. Uh, it's it, it looks like a it looks like a warehouse before you go in, but it's one of the best museums on natural history. And as we walked through there, it literally sat and showed you from the development of and the evolution from, you know, single cells. And you could act, you know, you could literally see each little evolved section come out and then pass on to the next thing and the next thing. Uh, over the over the millions of years that you know, three or three billion years since life started, but of course it was single cell for like a billion of that. But uh, you you could really see the evolution, and so yeah, I know uh, 
because I, I kind of said the same thing as Joel said, you know, oh, God created this. There had to be a divine creator. There had to be a plan. But you can literally see the piece evolve over slowly over time, over millions of years. You see each of these pieces. And it's just incredible when we saw that to just go, wow, you can you can literally see it in the fossil records um, as it grew. So that, that was pretty awesome. So mm -hmm. I'll, I'll go ahead and play this then. Thank you. And thank you for your thought. More informed of what to look for and how to study the mechanisms of autism in a mouse. And so we're trying to test the limits of the mouse vocalization system as a model to understand human vocal behavior. So that, that's one reason why I think it's important. This, the second is, I think it's just important to understand the biology of the animals around us. Uh, helps us understand nature a lot better and get a better appreciation of it and of our own selves. I've, I've never loved mice, so thinking of them as songbirds helps a bit. Uh, Rebecca. Oops. Yeah, I was going to, um, that was cute. I do I do hate mice, but that was cute. Um, um, I was going to say, um, to kind of piggyback on what Landon was saying, that that museum there in Thermopolis did make it very clear. It was definitely set up to take you on a journey to show you how the world worked and evolved. And I compare that to the time about a year and a half ago that we all went to the BYU Bean Museum. There actually is a museum um, near campus and they do have, they try to have some presentations on evolution and natural history. First of all, they have plaques all over the museum that says the church has no stance on evolution. You know, they have all these quotes, which is hilarious to me. It's, I mean, they're big plaques. They, they wanna make sure everybody understands that. But instead of presenting things very clearly, they do have, you know, bones and fossils and things. But, and I think this is on purpose. They do not have them presented in any way where you could make a clear line or arrive at any kind of determination or conclusion. They have everything scattered. Here's a million year old bone. Here's a 20,000 year old bone. Here's this, here's that. The information is there, but it is in no way presented in any kind of form that you would be able to experience what we experienced at the Thermopolis Museum and I would say any other uh, any other museum about evolution where they're trying to show you exactly what Joel was saying. How did we get here? How did this happen? Look at this amazing world. The BYU Museum is set up to kind of show you the opposite. Oh, cool, natural history, but sure, chunks of planets could have landed here and bones could be here. That's really what you kind of arrive at. I, I don't, do you want to weigh in on that, Landon? It was so interesting when we went there and saw just what they were trying to do to make it impossible for you to make those connections like we just discussed. Yeah, well, definitely with the human bones, that was yes. the biggest because you have the different yeah. Neanderthals and the, you know, the different bone yeah. structures and scattered the everywhere. Yeah, But they didn't put it in any order where you could really see the progression of the humans. They were kind of all over the place. So, uh, you know, obviously that's a problem for Mormon theology. What do you do with all these human species that aren't human? Do we do temple work for them? You know, it's going to raise all kinds of questions in, in, in uh, Mormon theology. And so I think they had to kind of spread it out so that you didn't ask questions. These were just dead, you know, species that didn't really matter, kind of the way I took it. Okay. Do do we have do we have another 10 minutes? 10 to just a tiny bit longer. I want to read a paragraph and I want to end with the TED talk that Jerry Lee found 
uh, I think it's a good way to sum up what we've been through. And so we'll do it and uh, try to be efficient at it. Um, so um, this is as uh, uh, Ed Young is uh, kind of summing up the book. And he says, the majesty of nature can be found in the wilds of perception. He's saying that uh, national parks are always grandeur, but that we don't need that um, in every park. So they can be found in the wilds of perception, the sensory spaces that lie outside of our umwelt and within those of other animals. To perceive the world through other senses is to find splendor and familiarity and the sacred in the mundane. Wonders exist in a backyard garden where bees take the measure of a flower's electric fields. Leafhoppers send vibrational melodies through the stems of plants and birds behold the hidden palettes of ruples and gruples. I have found the sublime watching tetrachromatic starlings gathering in the trees outside and playing sniffing games with my dog Typo. Wilderness is not distant. We are continually immersed in it. It is there for us to imagine, to savor, and to protect. So uh, we will end with uh, a, a kind of a long, a long clip of TED Talk that helps sum this up also, even better. A few years ago, I suddenly had a lot of extra time to spend staring out the window. Maybe you did a little bit of that, too, in quarantine at the start of the pandemic. And while we were locked down, I got kind of fascinated with what was still moving out there, like the local crows, who went on with their normal commute down the side of the mountain every morning, and up again, every evening at crow-quitting time. <laughs> Birds of prey came out every day and made their rounds. I'm using a process here called photostacking, where you take multiple pictures from a fixed point over time and layer them into one composite photograph. Photostacking is a way to show the trails of things like stars, fireflies, athletes, airplanes, pretty much anything that moves. It's a way to make the shape of those movements visible. Most of these have between 500 and 2,000 layers. They take a long time to build, and a lot of that time is spent just experimenting with which layers to keep in and which to leave out of the final image. Here, a group of pelicans came in from one side and noticed something intriguing in the water. Then another group came in from the other side and circled around to check it out. So this isn't one moment frozen in time like a traditional photograph, but something more like a story told in two dimensions with layers of the fourth dimension, kind of. Looking at flight trails this way, you really notice some of the rhyming patterns that repeat everywhere in nature, like waves of sound or water, or spiraling galaxies, whirlpools, and storms. And sometimes they 
seem to sort of sketch out other things that are usually invisible to us, like the thermal updrafts that hawks and vultures ride on, finding even the smallest patches of turbulence in the air to carry them. While I was working on these, I learned that some vultures are so good at this that they can soar that way without flapping their wings at all for hours, which has to be the most meditative way there is to look for carrion. <laughs> And this is what it looks like to navigate by shouting. Bats are characterized as either whisperers or shouters. And we're lucky that the range of our hearing ends right about where their voices begin, because the shouts can get up to 140 decibels, as loud as a jet engine. What we call silence is just the limit of our hearing. I love to think about that, and about how most other creatures, from European moles to rainbow trout, find their way by wavelengths of light or sound, or fields of electricity or magnetism. That our senses just aren't set up for, and that those are just the ways that we know about. In the 1930s, the British ornithologist Edmund Salusse studied flocks of starlings moving together as if they had one mind, and wrote a book on his conclusion that the birds must be psychic. And you know, there's still no evidence that they're not, but we now know that they follow each other. With a split-second lag time that's just too short for our human sense of time, and maybe for some predators like the peregrine falcon in the middle there. So these are pictures of group decisions made at a speed that makes them invisible to us. Pictures of the hidden intelligence in what might look at first random or even chaotic. Reminders that the universe. Isn't built to our measure, but operates on systems beyond our perception. That what we call empty air is anything but empty. If you're a bat, it holds the sound of the shape of a hillside. It's also a map of magnetic signals and electrical fields, and a topography of the smells of krill patches and plankton blooms. We humans have invented whole digital worlds, but sometimes we still need to be reminded that there's more in this heaven and earth than is dreamt of in our philosophy, and that there are endless ways to look at familiar sights, like a bird in flight, with fresh eyes, to expand our shared experience in a way that connects us with the rest of the living world. To feel both kinship with our fellow creatures, and respect, and even reverence, for their otherness. In the words of the poet and naturalist Jared K. Anderson, bats can hear shapes, plants can eat light, bees can dance maps. We can hold all these ideas at once, and feel both heavy and weightless with the absurd. Beauty of it all. Thank you. Okay, I'm finished almost. The one thing this reminded me is of the one concept I don't think we've covered too much, and that is、uh, the attitude towards animals. And we've we've covered it in a way. But Ed Yong says they move finished and complete, 
gifted with extensions of the senses we have lost or never obtained, living by voices we shall never hear, wrote American naturalist Henry Beston. They are not brethren, they are not underlings. They are other nations, caught with ourselves in the net of life, fellow prisoners in the splendor and the travail of earth. And with that, we're done. Thank you. Thank you so much, Luann. Oh my goodness. We love it when Luann is, is a presenter for us. And we referred to the book we did on language a few months ago. Luann led that one too. She really, she's been prolific in the book club and we absolutely love it. So um, I wanted to uh, quickly say, um, of course, thank you on the immense world. I wanted to let everybody know before we get to our preview uh, that Lisa has joined us. Remember, I was talking at the top of the program about uh, the book Letting Go. So hi, Lisa. Do you want to unmute for just a second? This is our author of Letting Go. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks. Not yeah, we're really, <laughs> we're really excited. The, I didn't read this book, but uh, when I saw the post on Facebook, it looked so fascinating yeah. and so I wanted to just hear the discussion and enjoy, you know, what little I could learn from it. Yep. No, and that's what's fun. That's kind of the secret of book club. We love to read the books. We encourage you to read the books. But if you didn't have a chance to read, please just come and enjoy and listen and, you know, learn and, and enjoy community. So, but yeah, we are really exciting decided to be reading Letting Go. I've already read it. And again, like I said, this will be kind of a bonus episode. We're going to talk to Lisa on Mormonish Podcast, and then we're going to have her pop over here to book club and have one of our, our evening bonus events soon. So welcome, Lisa. And we look forward to all reading your book and uh, having you join us soon. So thank you. Okay, thanks. All right. Now let's move on to Joel, who's going to be our discussion leader for next month in December, the happiness hypothesis. So take it away, Joel. Let's hear what we have in store for us in December. Awesome. Do you mind if I share my screen, Rebecca? Yeah, go, go ahead. Bruce or whoever needs to set that up, let Joel share. I got it. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks again, Luann. You're just such a, a great job, really thoughtful and well-prepared. I always enjoy when you facilitate. Thank you. Uh, so this the December book is going to be, as, as uh, Rebecca mentioned, the happiness hypothesis. And uh, it, it tries to answer the age-old question of like, what is happiness and how do you find it? Um, and I know that, uh, you know, my perspective is that in some form or fashion, that is the quest that everybody from all walks of life really try to find in life, right? Is is to try and address that question. I'm worried a little bit that we might overcomplicate it because when I was driving on uh, I-15 the other day, I saw the answer and I've even realized it, that Amazon apparently is a source of happiness. So I'm grateful to, to know that. <laughs> um, so there's a couple, of, we'll talk more about as a group, uh, how he actually answers the question of happiness and, and how we achieve it. But I wanted to maybe just make a, a, a quick you know, preview of, of the approach that he takes, which I find uh, also super meaningful. Um, as Jonathan looked at this, he combines uh, three sort of disciplines, if you will, on how he addresses this question. He looks at philosophy, religion, and also science which to me was meaningful um, because I don't know how many of you have had this experience, but I know that as I kind of departed from Mormonism as a faith, at least, um, my tendency was to discount and discredit a lot of what Mormonism taught, right? I, I kind of went from being super orthodox to being like, 
anti, not anti, but anti in a way that I, I discounted a lot of what I learned from religion. Um, and I think I may have been premature in doing that. I think there is, is goodness to be learned from all faiths, including Mormonism. And so I appreciate his approach that he didn't restrict how he looks at uh, happiness, but ultimately try to tap into wherever there's goodness, let's learn from it, regardless if it comes to us couched in the form of, of religion in this case. So one of the other sort of perspectives that I really appreciate, and this does not come from the book, but as we as either current Mormons or post-Mormons approach this question, uh, I think one of the things that I want to kind of set up maybe for our conversation, uh, I became aware last week of, of a phrase or a, an idea that I had never encountered before called totalizing ideologies. Um, and this came, you're welcome to look it up. It was a debate between Eric Weinstein and Sam Harris talking about actually um, the Palestine and, and Israeli question. But in that debate, uh, Eric Weinstein talks about the idea that that some beliefs have this idol, excuse me, uh, uh, what what he calls a totalizing ideology, which is the ideology itself sets itself up as the source of all answers, right? And if you look at <laughs> what we as many Mormons experienced, how we eat, what we drink, how we spend our money, what movies we consume, what ideas we have, what happiness means, what love means, what sex means, what society means, what religion means, and what family means, all had some anchor for us back to the church. And so I appreciate that as, as Jonathan addresses this question of, of happiness, that he doesn't re restrict himself to the perspective that there's one source for all of this, which is what many of us kind of experienced um, being members of the church. Finally, um, the other sort of idea that I'm going to share with you, I'm going to give you like a movie spoiler here in just a second. Um, he actually does provide a formula for what he calls the happiness formula. Oh, sorry, there it is. Uh, and this simple formula will bring happiness. So I sort of cats out of the bag in terms of <laughs> the end of the book. Um, but I appreciate how, um, and we'll talk more about each of these components, that uh, as he looks at us as humans, uh, if happiness were a formula, in other words, if we were computers and we just do X, Y, or Z and happiness were guaranteed, that would be a different kind of problem. But instead, he compares us to plants, which is that we ultimately need to cultivate an environment where happiness can happen uh, rather than be deterministically, uh, you know, formulaically given. So um, we won't go through all of this now, only to say that uh, as a preview for uh, for our discussion next month. Uh, like most of the books that we read in this book club, there are many more ideas than what we can cover in an hour or 90 minutes. So we're going to play a little happiness roulette next time that we meet, uh, and we're going to kind of dive into topics based on uh, what the, where the roulette says we should go. So that's what we'll how we'll approach that conversation, because there's a lot to cover, and we won't be able to do it all. So anyway, I look forward to uh, the conversation that we have here in the next little bit. So, Joel? Yeah, Joel. Please. This Jackie, this is ahead. Jackie Matthews. I'm loving this book. I I'm just so thrilled everybody picked it. But um, as I was reading another book called The Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett, you know the happiness book I think is 20 years old. 21. It was in 2002. They are now done. Neuroscience has gotten rid of our most beloved um, story about how the brain evolved in stages, and we've got the old the old brain, you know, and then the middle and the, and the frontal lobe is the newest. 
it's now like it, it, it got processed at different lengths. I'm not good enough at understanding it, but I want to head you up on that because I don't think it throws out where we store our different memory issues, but they didn't evolve bottom to the top up. It's a great, that's a great, that's a great sort of uh, caution. And I think um, uh, Jonathan gives that sort of uh, caution himself when he says that he's not proposing that this is the absolute end all be all, but in the context of as things evolve and change and we learn more, it's a great way to kind of set that up for us, Jackie. Thank you. And and I don't think it hurts the book at all. I, I but it's just interesting, you know, from the oldest part of the brain, and that's where all the trauma is stored up. Trauma is still stored in different in that part of the brain, but it doesn't mean it's the oldest. So again, we go back to the evolution of of language and the metaphor, and we created a metaphor that neuroscience changed. So I'm glad you're taking it. it on. You're smarter than I am, and <laughs> I'm let all you guys figure it out. Well, that's the beauty of a book club, right? Is uh, yep. that all of you smart people are going to contribute, hopefully. And so I uh, look forward to the conversation. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Joel. I'm really excited about this book now. Everybody make sure you get it. It is on Audible too. I know a lot of us like to just, you know, because we have so many books that we're, that we're trying to get through that Audible is a good option for us. So, all right, we have a few slides to end and then we'll move to our mix and mingle. So um, for anybody that is interested, we also run the Good Media Club, which is basically just a Facebook page, sometimes Instagram, and I remember where we kind of curate other things in, in the media that have to do with Mormonism. For example, we saw the movie, The Holdovers last night. So good. I really recommend that if anybody is just out there in the theater right now, but there's a character in it that's a Mormon kid. It's so cute. It's a very limited role, but you know, just really funny to see how Mormons are shown. But anyway, we kind of curate uh, Mormon media there. Um, the Good Book Club podcast is the audio version of the book club. All of our discussions can be found anywhere that you like to listen to podcasts. And we have some going back, I think a year and a half, at least we, we always lament that we didn't start recording them three years ago when the book club started. We we can still remember some of those amazing conversations, but unfortunately not recorded. But we do have quite a number of episodes wherever you find podcasts. And then, of course, everything, and as I explained at the beginning, is recorded and thrown onto our YouTube channel. It's a very tiny channel. It's just kind of for us. And most people on the outside don't find it. But if you happen to miss an episode or maybe have just uh, discovered the book club and would like to look back, we have a lot of episodes there on, on YouTube. You can search the Good Book Club for post-Mormons and you'll find it. If you just search the Good Book Club, you'll end up on a lot of Christian sites. So <laughs> you choose what you want to do. <laughs> Let's see what else. Um, also, um, Mormonish podcast, Landon and I run that and we do tend to talk a lot about the book club on there and we often interview book club members and all kinds of different guests. And as we discussed earlier, we're doing a lot on the different temples. We seem to have become activists in some ways, but it is kind of interesting. You can probably find something over there that you might interest you in and that's fun to check out. And that's um, also in podcast form and you can find it on YouTube just by searching Mormonish podcast. And um, if you would like, if you're joining us like for the first time tonight and haven't been a part of the book club before, there are different ways that you can connect. You can find us on Facebook. That's primarily where we get information out and kind of talk amongst ourselves throughout the month about the book. You can search the Good Book Club and look for that logo there. Send us a request and we'll let you in to join. It's a private group. You can also, if you're not so much into social media, just send me an email at thegoodbookclub at mail.com and I'll put you on the mailing list where you will get information about the the new books, 
bonus events and also the links to be able to attend uh, via Zoom. We're also on Instagram. Landon runs that, I think, or do I? I can't remember. One of us runs it. But again, we're not so much on Instagram. I know we need to move over there. That's where everybody is. But we're kind of Facebook people. Maybe it's a generational thing. I don't know. Anyway, find us. We'd love for you to be a part of us. And if you do happen to send an email to us, our favorite next slide that's always there, it often goes to spam for some reason when I reply from um, the mail.com. So if you send an email out, check back. I will have sent you some information. So that is the end of our book club meeting. Thank you, everybody.